Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who have come because we long to know you better. We understand that to know God is life eternal, and so grant that in this brief span of time, an hour, an hour and ten minutes or so, that we can come further in our understanding, not just to know God, but to know all there is. We, we want more, O oh God. We want intimacy. We, um, we do not want to remain on the periphery of spiritual things. Draw us nigh. Draw us close to yourself. By the power of the Holy Spirit, bring us deeper into a grasp of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Our Father, thank you for the privilege to give. Take every dime of this and use it to expand the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let me read you three quick verses out of 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> Here we go, beginning at verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Guys, if you listen to much pop music, and, and I do, I mean, I'm, I'm not down on the, uh, the, uh, the high school end, but I am, uh, I like uh, radio music from time to time. And if you listen to much of it, there is one thing that seems to get to repeated uh, quite frequently, and it has to do with, um, Everlasting love. That's the, that's the, about the best way I could do it. There's all kinds of songs like, um, if, uh, if love doesn't last forever, then what is forever for? Or, um, uh, I'm never gonna give you up. Or, you and me were meant to last, baby. Uh, it's just a, a, a recurring thing that happens in music and elsewhere that there is an eternality uh, associated with love. Well, unfortunately, the facts just don't support that. Uh, you're faced with a, with a very uh, alarming and upsetting piece of statistic and uh, a, a stark reality that um, uh, love clearly isn't lasting forever. Uh, 51% of all marriages end up in divorce. That means more fail than make it. Um, you're, um, you're, you're fighting your own cultural, um, uh, realities if you hold on to a notion, um, about everlasting love. That is, if you're talking about everlasting marital love. And I am. That is, that's what I, that's my, my subject is marital love. Now, in light of that, gang, the church has got to speak. We've got to say something for lots of reasons. There's, there's lots of reasons why the church cannot remain silent about this uh, alarming statistic, as well as um, trying to promote healthy and, and enjoyable marriages amongst us. Now, um, marriage really is... Um, 
it's really a rather strange institution, a rather bizarre thing when you think about it, because what you have in marriage, and I do my share of weddings, folks, but what you have at a wedding ceremony standing before me most of the time is two relatively young people, a male and a female, who have dated for a while and decided that this is how they're going to approach their future. They're going to approach their future together. <laughs> and and now we're not talking about five years from now or ten years from now or twenty, but thirty, forty, fifty years from now. We are plotting out our future and we are going to spend that future together. But most of us already know that, guys, not too far into the marriage, you realized that the person that's sitting next to you wasn't necessarily uh, the person you thought they were. They weren't exactly the person that you thought you were getting. So um, if marriage requires us to choose a person that we're going to spend our entire futures with, oh, we have some complex issues that are in front of us. You know, at wedding ceremonies, what I ought to be asking is not, Joe, do you love Mary? I ought to be asking, Joe, will you love Mary? Mary, not do, I know y'all do right now. I mean, you're just all kind of goggle-eyed. And, but, um, I mean, not Mary, do you love Joe? But Mary, will you love Joe? Because, Mary, you need to understand that the target's going to keep shifting on you. You are, you are, um, you are committing your future to somebody that's going to be morphing over the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years. And so um, off they sail into this wild blue yonder with a, with a person that keeps molting, uh, keeps shifting uh, as, as time goes on. So, gang, here's what I think, <laughs> if you're interested. Could it be that God is possibly up to something in marriage that is bigger than just providing for me a companion and sexual privileges? Do you think there's something bigger at stake? I do. And, and I want to defend that and then show you some ramifications. I mean, then we'll quit. But I want you to look at our text, guys. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. You know, I've used this text on numerous occasions, but um, uh, I normally just use about just verse 3, where it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, if you want to know God's will for you, there it is. He wants you to be sanctified. Now, I want you to notice in the text, guys, right after that word sanctification is a colon. You know what a colon is? Unfortunately, in the Greek language, there were no uh, punctuations. And so when Paul wrote that, he didn't include a colon. That colon was inserted in there for you for your ease and your, your um, interpretive abilities. But here's what a colon does in the English language. You know that in a, when you see a colon in a sentence, that everything on the right side of the colon is trying to explain to you what's on the left side of the colon. So what follows after the colon is just explanatory notes. So here's the, here's the assertion. This is God's will for you. Your sanctification. You want to know what I mean, says God? Here's what I mean. 
when, I, when I say that my will for you is, is your sanctification, here's what I mean. That you should uh, avoid all stain of sexual immorality. That you need to abstain from any kind of sexual sin. Okay, so God has in mind that we need to avoid sexual immorality. And how does he intend for us to do that? Read on. Verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion or of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, guys, this is huge. This is a fundamental principle that you've got to get a hold of. Um, I know the language isn't exactly, I mean, real clear, but most every commentarian that I read would tell you, when Paul uses the language that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in, in um, honor, uh, in, know how to possess, in sanctification and honor, what he is alluding to is marriage. I don't want you to possess your vessel in lust and yada, yada, yada. I want you to possess this vessel in honor and sanctification. Don't act like the Gentiles. The, the point is, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, the, 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 the one of the ways that we avoid sexual immorality and pursue sanctification is within the marital, within the boundaries of a, of a biblical marriage. So guys, here's what I, here's the principle. Um, the text is suggesting that marriage is a part of the process of sanctification. It's not the only part, but it is a part of the pursuit of sanctification. You want to know what God is up to, folks, in terms of marriage? He has provided an institution in which the whole pursuit of sanctification is enhanced, is advanced, and is pursued. Now, guys, what does that mean? What does that look like practically? The principle is this, and it's huge, that, that one of the vehicles that God has made available to produce sanctification in his people, which is his will, is marriage. Do you see that that is that is fundamental to understand that the that one of the foundational designs of this institution of marriage is that it is a vehicle by which sanctification is pursued. Folks, um, you're never going to be happy without holiness. You understand that? Well, what does God do? He gives you an institution that becomes a vehicle to produce holiness that ultimately concludes in happiness. This thing called marriage is not simply something that's designed for everybody to, you know, sail off into the sunset and have sexual privileges and, and, and not be lonely. No, gang. It is part of the strategy that God uh, makes available to folks like us to produce a, a, um, an environment in which we become more and more like the Savior. Now, again, what does that look like? I want to mention three things, 
three things that I, I don't think the wedding planner told you. Number one, here's, here's, here's what that principle fleshes out, fleshed out looks like. Marriage does not exist primarily to make you happy, but to make you holy. I just said that, guys. You understand that the primary goal of your marriage is not so much to make you happy, but to make you holy. Um, God puts us into an institution and, and teaches us how to flesh out things like faithfulness, commitment. Man, those are huge words. Huge faithfulness and commitment. So, gang, lo- looking at marriage... Um, as a place to get all my needs met has led to part of our disillusionment. That's not what its intent is, to get all my needs met. God's given us a tool for character formation. For instance, I lose an argument with my wife. Instead of that being an, an occasion for distance between us, it's an occasion where I learned humility. And heaven knows how much dear, dear, dear Dr. Young needs some of that. You know, guys, I, I stand before this little couple, this little bride and this little groom, and, and, and I, I know a little bit about them. And I know that, say, the, the Joe here is a, is a guy who is um, obsessively neat. And he's marrying Mary who never met a piece of paper that she didn't think should be stored and saved and kept someplace. Mary was raised in a family where the family car got washed once, twice at the most, a year. And the car was a place where you ate hamburgers and french fries, ice cream, ate candy and drank milkshakes. Whereas for Joe, Joe is devoted to having a... a, an impeccably neat spick and span car. Do you see the problems? Do you see what we're facing here? But what God has created is an environment in which characters can be formed. You know, learning to deal with somebody who is so distinctly different from me cannot be, is not always easy. But it can be sanctified. And that's the intent. Um, a, a guy by the name of Stanley Hauerwas. I don't, I don't know him. He teaches um, ethics and theology at Duke Divinity School. But he said something that I thought was kind of comical. He said that the most basic law of marriage can be stated in one sentence. You always marry the wrong person. <laughs> uh, the person that you thought was... Miss Wright is not. You know, Miss Wright usually turns, shows up after the marriage. And the guy that you thought was Mr. Wright turns out to be something other than, than what you thought. And so the adventure of marriage is learning to love the person to whom you are married. And we can do that. We can learn to love as people who will look to the source of all love. Guys, we can learn to love. And in the midst of that learning curve, something else is going on. I'm being sanctified.
I got one other quote from you. This is from my, one of my heroes, J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy that wrote <clears throat> the, the famous uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. He says this, Nearly all marriages, even happy ones, are mistakes. In the sense that almost certainly in a more perfect world, or even with a little more care in this very imperfect world, both partners might have found more suitable mates. But the real soulmate is the one that you're married to. They didn't tell you that in the wedding planner's office, did they? Because, guys, the the primary goal of this institution is not to bring you happiness. It's to bring you holiness, which brings you happiness. Now, here's here's the second um, little... The way that you understand 1 Thessalonians 4, here's here's the second way it fleshes out. The biggest challenge in marriage... It's not him, it's not her, it's you. I want to read you an exchange that took place in the commercial appeal in the Dear Abby section. Now, you know Abby. Uh, Abby is Ann Lander's sister. And uh, a woman writes to Dear Abby, and she signs her letter for better or worse. So I'm reading to you from Miss Better or Worse. She says this, Dear Abby. I have been engaged to a wonderful man for more than two years and cannot seem to set a wedding date. He loves me and my nine-year-old daughter. He does all of the laundry, the dishes, and the cleaning, and he accepts my daughter as his own. He works two jobs so we don't go without anything. Sounds perfect, right? The problem is, I don't think I love him. I, I say that I do, but I don't feel it. He is all a woman could ask for in a husband. Uh, But is that enough to replace love? Or have I read too many romance novels? He wants to get married as soon as possible. I'm 29, have never been married, and I feel my daughter needs a father. I'm also afraid I won't find a man who will ever love me as much as he does. Can I find a man whom I love who accepts my daughter as his own? Or should I marry a man I don't love but who would be a wonderful husband and father? For better or worse. Now, gang, what advice would you give that girl? How would you reply to that letter? There are incredible issues in there. Uh, marital and social and moral and biblical and all. But what, what would you say? I want to read you what Abby said. Dear for better, um, if you marry this man knowing in your heart that you do not love him, you will be doing yourself and him a great disservice. Marriage is supposed to last forever. And forever is a long time to live with yourself, feeling that you sold out because you were afraid you wouldn't find a man you can love. Let him go. Now, I don't know which way you went with your advice, and that's not my point. I don't know whether you went one direction or another direction, but... Um, I, I want you to think with me about the, the assumptions that are contained in this exchange. Let me mention just too quickly. There's the assumption that the only basis for a lasting relationship is some kind of reciprocal romantic love. Now, folks, with the exception of a wedding ceremony... Everything, every one of the elements which anthropologists recognize as universal to marriage and family uh, are, are contained, are, they're already present in that relationship. They are, uh, they're living together. Uh, they're uh, raising a daughter. They're trying to produce a healthier and more prosperous family. 
and, and I guess we can assume that there is a physical dimension to their relationship. Um, but this man's feelings are proved in his actions. Uh, I, I think you would agree that with that. But the, the only thing that this relationship is missing is a romantic love on the part of the woman uh, who doesn't know whether it's all the result of reading too many romance novels. And yet Abby says to her, throw all of that away. All those elements of a universal marriage, throw all of that away. And um, uh, by the way, I, I, you did promise to marry him two years ago, but ignore that too. Um, and, and you have no obligations to that man uh, who has sacrificed so much for you. Uh, and for your daughter, not to mention you have no obligations, no duties to that daughter of yours. Does that change your advice? Here's another assumption I want you to think about that, that it's, that's found in this exchange. One's highest obligation is to oneself. And, and when that is true, it becomes your moral obligation to leave a relationship when you sense the slightest hint of personal dissatisfaction, get out the door. Again, I don't know what kind of advice you would have given, but here's what I want to point out. There may be a need here to redefine your marital strife. And the strife that you're experiencing in your marriage right now may not, may, maybe is, maybe not, it might not be his fault. It, it might not be her fault. It might be your fault. Did that ever cross your mind? Guys, here's, here's my advice. Take it or leave it. Stop trying to fix him. Stop trying to fix her. The only thing that you can fix is you. But understand that part of the marital strife that you're experiencing is because you live in a world of self-absorption. And the real issue in your marriage is not him. It's not her. It's you. So go address that. Here's my, um, my third and final fleshing out of 1 Thessalonians 4. Gang, you must beware of asking marriage to do too much. If you've still got your Bibles in your laps, if you can find Luke 14 real quick, and then we'll, we'll finish this up. The principle is, beware of asking marriage to do too much. In, in Luke chapter 14, there is a parable that begins in verse 15. Luke 14, 15. It's a parable that I think many of you are familiar with. It's a parable, which it's in my Bible, it's called the parable of the great supper. It begins with a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. That's in verse 16. Um, it's a parable. Understand, Jesus is telling a parable and he says, a certain man gave this great big old banquet and he invited whole lots of folks. And so he sent out his, uh, his servants in verse 17 to, you know, to extend those invitations. And all he got was excuses as to why they couldn't come to this supper. So um, uh, these people would say to the, the invitationer, he would say, they would say, I'm sorry, I can't come because yada, yada, yada. The first excuse that you see in verse um, 
uh, 18 is that he has a piece of ground that he's bought and that he's got to go look at. Now, whoever bought a piece of ground without looking at it first? But anyway, then the second excuse was uh, verse 19. I just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go see if they can, you know, pull a, 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 a plow. Now, who's ever bought a car without test driving it? But I mean, anyway, you come to the third excuse and it's found in verse 20. Still another said, I can't come to your supper. I can't respond to your invitation. I'm not coming to this big show that you're putting off, putting on because I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. All right. Now, guys, I want you to notice how Jesus responds to these excuses. It's in verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, I'll be my disciple. Whoa. Um, what, what in the world is Jesus saying here, gang? What he's saying is that my marriage and family have got to be put in its appropriate place. I can't try to get from my marriage what only Jesus can give me. You know, folks, we put impossible demands on our spouses to fill up that place that only God can fill. And then it's not too long before we realize, oh my, she's not meeting my needs. And then we live with the disillusionment that our, our spouse simply cannot deliver. That is, if what I'm asking her to deliver is to carry the freight of, my, of meeting my needs, she can't do it. And she's not supposed to. But I got married thinking that this was now going to be the thing. That was going to complete all of my whole life and everything was going to be fine. Gang, there has never been a groom that was more kind, more devoted, more sacrificial, more in love with his bride than Jesus Christ. When He is the center of our lives, when He is our highest loyalty in life, He floods us with ability. Ability to pull off the marital impossible. Maritally impossible. Anything, anything else that I try to put at the center of our li- my life undermines love. It destroys love. So getting marriage in the proper place is oh so important. Marriage can never be my excuse for not chasing after the King of Kings.
Don't put marriage there. There's only one thing that belongs there. And it is a groom that has sacrificed it all so that he can have a relationship with his bride. Our Father, I do pray that you will help uh, clarify for us what it is that you're up to in this institution known as marriage. Thank you, O oh God, for the, great, the grand way that you love us and demonstrated in so many um, unique and, and unpredictable ways. And I pray that you will uh, stir us to the place where we are a people who are chasing after Jesus Christ and all of his beauty and watching him as he has promised to um, add everything else that we could imagine when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness the promise is he will add all these things including marital harmony to us oh god remind your people of the beauty and the sanctity of this wonderful institution we pray of course in jesus name amen